That's so good. Um, Professor Howard Hendricks, um, he's from Dallas Theological Seminary. He had once said this and asked, how big is your God? The size of your God determines the size of everything. And I think that's so true. Um, one story that I actually heard um, that just really challenged me and still continues to challenge me is actually coming from Peter um, and just one of the stories that he told of one of his missionaries from Mvolo. And he was uh, going to fly to some of those villages in Raja and taking some of um, their uh, native missionaries from Mvolo uh, to go and preach and to uh, reach um, people in the villages there. And one of the guys there, his name was Gabriel, he was sick from typhoid and malaria. Um, and, you know, most people would just bow out from doing that, from actually going out. But this man, Gabriel, decided to board this, the plane anyway, and he said something to this effect. He said, though I am sick, I praise God, and I am so thankful for the prayers of the believers, especially the believers uh, from the Americas. I believe it will carry me to take the gospel to the Raja people where they need it. I was just really struck that day of how big is his God and how that wants me, makes me want to say, God, I want to know that here. I want to see you as big. On Easter Sunday, we celebrate the greatest single act that has eternally changed the course of history and it should impact the prayers that we pray. Paul had this big God and Paul had just big prayers for the Ephesians. And so we're gonna take a look at how is an intercession here, his prayers for the Ephesian church driven by his confession of how great Christ is. And hopefully we'll see how that impacts our prayers um, going forth here as we find ourselves in North America and Houston today. And so let's go and take a look in our text in verse 15 or 16. And we see here that Paul starts off for this reason. Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. And so Paul, he starts off with a greeting to the Ephesians church, followed after by a run-on worship service of 12 verses, 201 words of blessing God for salvation, of his mercy, of his adoption, of his redemption. And then he goes into our text today, Thanksgiving, verses 15 to 16a. And then he goes into intercession, 16b to 19. And then he goes Lastly, and tops it off with confession of how Christ is above all from 19 all the way to the end of the chapter. And Paul starts off by saying, for that reason, for that reason, or for this reason. And that's just something we need to, to always put a marker on and be looking, before we look forward, we look back. And I think he is looking specifically to this blessing of this eulogy. It's almost like he can't get over the fact of this big God saving him. And also this big God that had not just Jews in his story, but he had also the whole world to come into his story. Look at verse 13 
And he's speaking of the grandness of his plan of even bringing the non-Jews or the Gentiles into this plan. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And we see that the Ephesians' faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their love um, and their testimony um, that God has been mighty in their midst was all in his vision. <laughs> he had tuned his heart to sing of God's praise in the Ephesians' lives. And if we look at this further, it says that he was praising um, them for the faith of the Lord Jesus and your love toward all of the saints. And if he's talking specifically to the Gentiles, then is he not talking about the Gentiles' love for the Jewish Christians here in this passage? And if that's the case, then these Gentiles' love of the Jewish Christians is just proof of breaking down these ethnic, ancestral, historical barriers between Jew and Gentile. That was the point of Ephesians. As we look back um, at our uh, slide that talks about the purpose of Ephesians, that God had created a unified, a beautiful, a perfect, and a good world. And yet that world was divided and broken down by sin, by man's rebellion of saying, I don't need God, and trying to live their lives without them, him. And the good news was that God in Christ in love, didn't leave his creation broken. The big story is that God is reconciling a divided creation, and he's reconciling all heavens and all, all earth in Christ to big Savior, Jesus Christ, who has covered those sins and is inviting us into relationship with Jesus through his death and resurrection. And that's the big story here in Ephesians. And yet the other weave uh, weaving in this tapestry is that not only he's bringing all creation from God um, and creation under him through Christ, but he's also doing it through a new community where he would bring Jew and Gentile under one banner. And that happened, actually, in the lenses of this text. When you see of what this church represented, rep represented is that Gentiles and Jews came together in their brokenness, they let down their hatred, their um, animosity, their um, sins, and they were brought to one at the cross. That's a beautiful story. People laying down their arms, coming together, and being a part of a new body, a new body that God was birthing, both of Jew and Gentile, that would be a preview of everything God wants to do in creation. If you could just imagine how beautiful that is, if you were looking at Paul and he's painting this picture, this wonderful tapestry of God's artwork of his plan, you would want to go and look over and take a look at the glimpse of what he was painting, every stroke, and everything. And if this is what Paul was seeing in his canvas, can you imagine how much he gave thanks for the Ephesians that they were a part of this? They were part of this beautiful tapestry. And he even says that he prayed unceasingly, which basically means that he prayed morning, noon, and even in every single time he found himself praying, he was just giving thanks for the Ephesians. 
coming to Christ. Top it all off, Paul was under house arrest in prison. He was probably approaching the very ends of his life. He was discouraged. He was probably beaten down by his arrest, seeing that the end was near. Yet his prayers were not chained down because it was gratitude that always brought him to look up. And we got to ask ourselves, is Thanksgiving an endangered part of our prayers? It is always an endangered part of our prayers if you don't time, have time to guard it. Have you ever noticed how your prayers just catches fire when you just start in a posture of gratitude, when you start thanking God for the great work he's done in you, but also in others, birthed out of a joy of seeing them turn to Christ? And I wonder how, you know, if we're looking for fresh fuel in our prayers, that we would just respond with just this, God, thank you. Thank you for the person that led me to Christ. And you just picture them in your, in your heart. And I got to do that just recently as somebody um, had given me a call and they were kind of asking about my story and my journey. And, and I was just recounting, not from my parents, but even from way back before that, of uh, God's faithfulness to my, even my grandparents, in which God had um, taken a, a church in the middle of LA's Chinatown and um, that they were just being faithful to God's call to go out and just share this good and this beautiful news of the salvation. And they went and knocked on on my grandma's uh, apartment door in in Chinatown, and that was just really the start, the beautiful start of how my family uh, became to know Jesus. It's just through the faithfulness of a church, um, just being obedient and being joyful in that obedience and loving Jesus so much so that they would go out and share this good news of this story that Jesus takes you out of the, uh, of the darkness of the Buddhism and the ancestral worship of my ancestors and he brings you into marvelous lights. What if we just started right there in this posture of thankfulness for just the people in our lives today? What if we started in just thanking God for his church? What if we just even started in just every single moment of thanking God for churches, thanking God for organizations that have uh, been an impact in our lives? And so on this Easter, I just would love for us to really just simply do that. And so if you would just take a time um, just to spend some time in prayer, um, just, uh, just thanking God um, just for the people in your life, the churches in your life, even this church family just so wells it with joy how much I love you and the elders love you and just, um, just makes me want to dance and sing. So let's just pray and just thank God for the people in our lives, the churches in our lives, and um, even this church that has allowed us to meet in worship.
And as the Lord leads, as you pray for people who have impacted you in the past, maybe the Lord is also bringing people in your lives in the present that are struggling or suffering. And will you just also pray for them? That even you would have an opportunity just to say how much you thank God for them. That you would encourage them if you know that they've been struggling with health issues or illness. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Paul's prayers begin with gratitude, but it doesn't end there. It continues on and just keeps on going out of this worship to gratitude and into intercession as if he couldn't stop. And he's remembering you in my prayers, almost giving the sense that Paul is even praying, even as he's penning these words. And he, he's not just bringing a casual remembrance um, and thanking God for a great memory. All of us, including Facebook, can conjure up great memories. And rather, but Paul is using their turning to God, the Ephesians' faith, as a weapon. He uses it as an ammunition to start lighting up the enemy. And if you don't catch this here, this is... Paul going on offense here, and he is going uh, and standing in the gap. Remembering is a uh, word for petition and intercession. In other words, Paul is going in for the kill. And he's going in to destroy the works of the enemy because of the power and the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, the spirit of God that's in him. But Paul is not the one who sparks the offense. <laughs> um, he knows the very source of his power. Notice he writes, to the Father of, and the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, or the all-glorious Father. In no other place does Paul use this title on only for God himself. This is saying, and Paul is saying, you know what? The, the power of my prayer is not me, but the power is in the Father. He is the source of all glory. All glory flows out of him. And this is showing something really important, that when you pray for others, your starting point is God. That God, and you would listen to what God says, and, says, and you would listen to how God would want you to pray for them. And you would wonder of how and listen to how God feels about the person you are praying for. And you would want to also think about what God would want to pray. Your starting point is God 
And guess what, guys? Your starting point is not someone who gets depleted, who gets emotionally exhausted, who gets tired. He is a God who is grace and power and glory have no limits. He is more than adequate to not only meet your needs, but he will meet their needs and to millions more. Amen? What did Paul pray for? <laughs> he has all this power at his disposal. Paul prays for clear vision. He says, may, may the Lord God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The spirit of revelation ref refers to a disclosure. Um, it's a revelation. And this points probably back to the Holy Spirit, which Paul, again, reminded them back in verses uh, 11 to 14, specifically 13 and 14, that the spirit of God um, is in them. It is the sealing of God's secure salvation in them. It is like God himself took, um, took a stamp and burned it into the ink, testifying to the authenticity of his salvation and securing it with his own blood. And he's saying, this is the spirit of God that's already sealed you, that has already bought you, that's already is put as a guarantee, as a stamping of my inheritance on you. And this is reinforced um, by the spirit of God's purpose. We know from John 15 is that the spirit of God, when he comes, will convict the world of all unrighteousness and would lead his people into the truth, convict them of sin, and then also lead them to a deeper love and an understanding of who God is. And this is reinforced by the fact that Paul prays for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And this refers to God the Father and just knowing God the Father. We're, we're called to know God. And it's not a truth proposition, but the believer coming into a deeper, intimate knowledge of God, a personal transformation that leads to corporate. But Paul means that we get this experiential knowledge, this word epigenose, which used in this specific way, this meaning intensifies to express knowing something exactly and completely. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the goodness of our God. That he's not just told you to know him, but he gives you his spirit because the Spirit has known him before the foundations of this world. The same Spirit that has led you, bought you, guaranteed you, sealed you, leads you to know who God is. Isn't that great? Isn't that amazing? The Spirit of God, this wisdom and in revelation is also speaking of an intimacy. Oh, an intimate relationship with God the Father. That you would not only know him to be big, but also know him to be gracious, and to be loving and compassionate and loving. God wants you to know the full range of his emotions for you, his full range of his love for you. And that is why Paul goes and he says this, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. This word just means to bring to light what was in the dark. And it's in the passive voice, meaning that we didn't bring ourselves out of this darkness into the light, 
God had to do it. <laughs> we saw that in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. And Paul writes that the essence of the gospel is this, that we were dead in our sins. Paul, remember, he's talking mainly to Gentile believers because they knew this. They were preached to this to the Jews, by the Jews all the time. Paul says of these Gentiles later in 4.18 of how they used to see them and maybe how some still walk in that. In verse, chapter 4, verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And so Jews, they would just see them and they thought they were seeing them as God saw them, as enemies and in the darkness. But yet faith in Jesus Christ brought them out of this darkness and into God's family to be the sons and daughters of God in light. Listen to Ephesians 5.8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. And so Paul is saying that whatever you have, whatever the light that you have has been given to you by God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, gifted to you before the foundation of this world and has been gifted to you and sealed in you by the Holy Spirit, you've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Ephesians 1.3. According to Ephesians 1.3, you've been given all the blessings that you can ever imagine. Paul is asking, simply, turn the lights on. <laughs> Have your eyes enlightened, meaning that you would be given the spiritual vision to see what is actually yours already. Our vision is blurry, and we just need the corrective lenses to see what God has given us. It's like if, if you're in a bus in the middle of South Sudan, and you get stuck in the mud, and you're trying your hardest to pull it out. And um, you may not have Grant Clinton on the bus, so you, know, you won't be able to really push it out. But, um, and you're just pushing and pushing, and then it starts raining, and then it starts kind of flooding out, and you just, you're stuck. And you don't know that Clark Kent is on board that bus, which I think you're pretty close, Grant. It's pretty close. <laughs> in the same way, Christ has already blessed us with and we just need to make sure we don't live beneath our privileges. So how does our vision need to be clear in three ways? Number one, to fully know the hope of God's calling. To fully know the hope of God's calling. We know Amazon's book list, recommended books, um, is flooded with just books devoted to finding your calling and finding your purpose and finding your strength and finding your ultimate whole time to exercise those strengths and finding the ultimate personality of the ultimate personality test of the ultimate time to be able to put together uh, your best life. Now, and this is not speaking of that. This is speaking of not finding your own calling, but Paul is calling them to the hope of his calling, to find your place in the purposes of God. In other words, he invites them to be a part of this new community of God that's on the move to fulfill his greater and grander purposes. He wants them to see that they're a larger part of, of a community that is moving forward in eternity that's going to be a preview of what's going to happen of that unity, and that's the church and that's the body of Christ. Secondly, he prays that they would clearly know 
the riches of our glorious inheritance. And we've talked about that, but the idea of this, that you are his treasured possession and you, he will redeem you on that final day. He just wants to know the amazing value, the amazing value that he places on you as sons and daughters of God. He's done so much that he's rescued you from the very beginning. All the way back from the foundations of the world, God chose us. Last week, we just got to eavesdrop on, um, on a conversation within the Trinity that led to, to God and thinking about what God would say when he chose us, not because of works we had ever done, but simply by his unmerited favor and love due to the praise of his glorious grace. And lastly, he prayed that they would fully know the power they have in Christ. He says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? And I think with this mention of power, I just really want to focus on this, that he makes explicit a subject that has been implicit from the first and is central to the letter. When you look at Ephesians, it has a focus on the words for power more than any New Testament letter. When you think about Ephesus and that its birthplace, it was the birthplace of the occult and of magical practices and of spiritual demons and spiritual powers uh, that were vying for authority. And, you know, you see in Ephesus, they had like up to 50 gods trying to worship. And, they, and, every, and you couldn't figure out which god to worship because you have all these powers. But Jesus is saying here in Ephesians, or Paul is saying about Jesus in Ephesians, that Jesus has the power. He is far above that. And in verse 19, you see four different words for power occur, emphasizing God's incredible power in Jesus and also in our lives, that we, because we're connected to Jesus, we've been given this ultimate power, the God who has breathed creation into being, the God who has sent his son, Jesus Christ, with one word, that is the one that also gives us power, immeasurable power, um, granted to us. And this leads into confession. <laughs> Not of personal confession, but this leads to who Christ is and what drives this entire prayer. Listen with me in 19b to 23. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills in all in all. Do you see Paul's vision here? He is just, has a laser sight on who Jesus is. First, he says that Christ is far above all. Here Paul says that first that God had raised him from the dead. And this Easter, I think, as we celebrate that, I think a lot of times we're just so familiar with Jesus Christ raising from the dead. And we say that and we don't really picture and stop of what that all entailed. Back 2,000 years ago, that was the most violent death that you could ever think about. The Roman Empire would be in full swing and they would put the 
um, this execution, this of crucifixion before the people there, that if you mess with Rome, you cross her, and you're going to end up on this cross. You're going to end up like this robber or this enemy on this cross. And public crucifixions were just held outside the city walls, outside in Jerusalem, just for everyone to be warned, do not mess with Rome. Victims would hang on a cross. They would be nailed on a 9 to 12 foot cross being hanging from one's arms would be just painful. If you think about holding up your arms for about five minutes, you think to yourself, imagine yourself being held up for hours and hours leading into days, how excruciating that would feel. Your shoulders would pop out of, from its sockets. Your arms would lengthen from several inches. Most would put pressure on their feet, which had been pierced already on a 45-degree angle, but eventually they would just break your legs. Eventually your chest and your shoulders would sag. You'd have to labor to bring your body to just gasp on one breath. Until either by losing blood, by losing oxygen, being able to expel carbon dioxide, you would suffocate and die. And that's how ridiculously powerful God is. God took the most powerful form of execution and flipped it around. And he said on that Easter morning, the living God fat, laughed in the face of death and rose Jesus from this cross. This cross of shame, this cross of saying, ha ha, nobody can mess with Rome. Nobody can take him off the cross. God says, I can. I can lift off my son from this cross and it is no, absolutely no light measure of my power. God can use the lowest thing to exalt Jesus to the highest place. Look at verse 19. Then he seated Christ at the right hand in the heavenly places. Remember that Jesus was low. He was in the position of washing his disciples' feet. He willingly accepted the humiliation of the cross. And he gave himself up to die rather than to be worshipped. And now Jesus Christ now is raised up to the right hand in the heavenly places. <laughs> now to be worshipped. Notice this in Ephesians 1.3. This was already mentioned there. In the heavenly places in verse 3 in chapter 1. Where God's blessings have been given to us. And in this confession. If you flip over to chapter 2 verse 6. We see this same thing where God is saying, and Paul is saying that out of the deadness of your heart, you've been raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The same blessings come from the same place. We will be in Christ at the right hand with God, and then one day we're gonna be with him in that resurrected place. And it's clear, Christ is far Far above all, above all the richest kings and presidents and all the spiritual powers that are named and unnamed. He's talking about Satan and the powers that we can't even see. And Jesus is far above that. And lastly, Christ is also not only far above that, but he fills all. In fact, he is the fullness of him who is the fullness of God and also fills his all 
into the church. And that's what we see. We see from Colossians 2, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you've been filled in him who's the head of all rule and all authority. Jesus is saying, I'm fully God and yet I'm also the one that will fill their church. And what this is saying is that King Jesus is that he not only was risen from the grave, but he is filling the church. He's the fullness of God filling the church for your benefits. He is the exalted king, the Lord of all the universe. He's the head of the church, and there is no end to his power filling us. And so as we celebrate Easter, as we celebrate that Jesus is risen and that we're given future life in him, also remember that we've been given incredible power before God. And that's simply through faith you are invited in to not be a son and then daughter, not just be that, which is awesome in itself, but you've been given full access to his power. So that as you're in Christ, as Jesus takes upon the death sentence that was due to you and he flips it and he gives you a life sentence of righteousness, that now as Christ is in you, he's energizing you, he's asking you, he's, he, he's loving you and he's also um, working through you. They're working through you to see people healed, seeing people to be set free, working through you to set people free by the power of Jesus if we would only see. And I think the question is, why aren't we seeing more people living a completely changed life? And I think it's just simply because of fear. (laughs) Fear of failure, fear of what we don't see, fear of what people would, would think or maybe our own struggles and fears. And so on this Easter, if you would just close your eyes as we close, um, I just would like you to visualize this with me, that God, my prayer is that God would just drive out any fear in your heart. Because it was the fear that drove the disciples into hiding. They said they would never leave him. Some of them have said, I'll fight to the death to defend you. And yet their leader denied him three times. But one by one, they all fled. Then Jesus died and rose again. And you're kind of wondering, were they not wanting to see Jesus because they're afraid of being heaped on shame by Jesus saying, I didn't love you? Or, man, you really messed up. But one by one, starting with Peter, He restored Peter, and I can imagine Peter just, um, just, just look, trying, struggling so hard to look Jesus in the face. Maybe Jesus said to him, look at me, (laughs) look at me. Peter, do you love me? Peter having to look in Jesus' eyes, to look at him, say yes. Jesus, I love you. And Jesus responding to him, yes, Peter, I know that you love me. Tend to my lambs. Can you imagine that that look changed Peter's eternity? So much so that he later called himself an eyewitness to his majesty. That he called salvation something in which angels 
longed to look and because he had been saved, he had been freed, he had been forgiven, and out of that face-to-face experience with the living Jesus himself, he was changed to go out and to preach the gospel, to look the beggar, the, the, the lame man in the eye and say, look at me. I do not have silver or gold to give you, but if you look at me in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to walk. He raised up this lame man by the right hand, raised him up. That man was healed (laughs) instantaneously. That's the Jesus that you and I serve, and he's calling us to turn away from a life of fear and to turn to Jesus and trust and boldness knowing that he has changed the world and he's continuing to change the world. As we worship together, as I invite the worship team and the prayer team to come together, will you just spend some time with the Lord Jesus this moment? Spend some time. If you've been weighed down by shame or struggle, that you just spend time with the Lord Jesus struggle of past relationships, struggle of past failures, that you would ask and that you would look and that Jesus knows that he looks at you with love and compassion. And he says, I am the fullness of God. I am far above all things. And how far as east is from the west, I've removed your sins from me. Be freed. Where is Jesus wanting to free you from any shame, any fear, any failure, any pain? Will you give that to him tonight? Will you just ask Jesus, God, Help my blurred vision. Give me clear vision so I can see you high and lifted up. And see you looking into me. Know that you love me and that you've called me to more. Called me to see what I already have. To know me and so that I can go out. Be loved by you out of that love, the fullness of that love, that others may know me. Jesus, we worship you now. Give you praise in Jesus' name. Continue to pray, stand, sit, kneel, and come forward for prayer as we worship together.